Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher and theologian, once wrote this, if you have any knowledge at all of human nature, you know that those who only admire the truth will, when danger appears, become traitors. The admirer is infatuated with the false security of greatness, but if there's any inconvenience or trouble, he pulls back. Admiring the truth instead of following it is just as dubious a fire as the fire of erotic love, which at the turn of the hand can be changed into exactly the opposite, to hate, jealousy, and revenge. Christ, however, never asked for admirers or adherents. He consistently spoke of followers and disciples. We come to 2 Timothy this morning, and this is a word that reminds us not to be mere admirers but to be followers and disciples, to be steadfast in the face of great difficulty. That's at the heart of this letter from Paul to his friend and spiritual child, uh, Timothy. Um, Just a quick reminder of the context of this letter. Uh, The stakes are very high for Paul. Paul is in a Roman prison cell. Uh, It looks like he's awaiting his final trial and likely execution. His death is imminent and expected as a result of his gospel ministry. And so these are his really last word and testament to his friend, Timothy, his beloved protege. Uh, Paul was his boss, his mentor, his leader, a spiritual father. In good Anglican terms, Paul was his bishop in the best sense of the word. In chapter 1, Paul had encouraged Timothy to remain faithful rather than abandon him as so many had done. So many who apparently were admirers of the truth only had deserted Paul, had deserted the church, had turned their back on him and his ministry, and he doesn't want Timothy to be counted among them. Uh, Here uh, in this letter, Paul wants him to be faithful, a faithful disciple, a faithful pastor, devoted to the gospel over and above anyone and everything else. Um, And it's not a hypothetical faithfulness. Paul, in a prison awaiting execution, imagines that Timothy, too, may have a rough path, that he also might encounter uh, suffering and grief, persecution, hardship, shame, discouragement. What would Paul tell Timothy to remain steadfast and to be faithful in light of such challenge? What would he tell us in light of such challenge? That's what we're going to look at this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is all about the apostolic task and message and focus from Paul uh, to Timothy. So let's look at this this morning. Uh, You've got it there in your bulletin, and you see that in the midst of this uh, letter where the stakes are really high, um, the orders are very direct. There's at least seven, probably eight commands just in our passage. Um, this is a bullet point kind of a passage. You still see the tenderness. Uh, you see the affection that Paul has for Timothy. He begins, you then, uh, my child. He's looking out for him as only a father would do. 
And the first thing he tells them is to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I think this is significant. Uh, Paul doesn't start by telling Timothy to just toughen up or, or to suck it up or measure up or, hey, don't worry, these things are going to seem bad, but they're not really that bad. It's not what Paul does. He says, you need a strength that you don't have. You need a strength that can only come from God and a strength that only comes by depending on his grace instead of relying on your own strength, on your own efforts. Um, and it looks like Timothy may have been fairly timid as a person. Um, he wouldn't naturally do that, but Paul wants to make sure, hey, you need to rely on the sturdy grace of God in order to strengthen you uh, for what is to come. His central task is in verse 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Um, last week we mentioned that you see a little bit of the early church's discipleship strategy in these pastoral letters. Um, the idea that you have Paul as a spiritual father to Timothy. Um, and here we learn that that's not supposed to be uh, the end of the story. Paul is pouring into Timothy so that Timothy will pour into others, who will pour into others, and so on and so forth. That is the earliest strategy for discipleship and the spread of the gospel. It's the most reliable strategy we have still today, though it's costly because it takes time and it takes effort and it takes investment. This is about a kind of mentor discipleship that happens uh, in the context of a very deep relationship. Uh, these men know each other very, very well. And it's worth noting that what Timothy is supposed to pass on, um, well, there's a definite shape to it. Last week we talked about a baton uh, being passed. That there's something that Paul has received. He's passed it to Timothy. Timothy is supposed to receive that and pass it to others. He's not making it up as he goes. He's not supposed to refashion the baton based on uh, what might ring more true in his day or what might be more palatable. He's supposed to receive something intact, pass it on intact for the honor of God and the spread of the gospel. Uh, that's part of the challenge of faithfulness. It is to either not receive this baton of faith or to be tempted to modify it or change it or adapt it to make it more palatable so we don't have to go through <laughs> the suffering and the hardship and the shame. It would have been so tempting for Timothy to modify things, to go, I don't want to end up in a prison cell like Paul. Um, what if we just kind of shave this edge off? What if we made this a little more palatable uh, for the Roman Empire? But that's not what he's called to do. He's supposed to receive it faithfully and pass it on faithfully. This is how discipleship uh, works. It's how it's always worked, and it's how it still works best today that kind of intentional mentor discipleship. Um, the other thing, and I won't belabor this too long, uh, but let me just make a quick Anglican-specific point here. Um, if you hang around Anglicans long enough, uh, you might encounter the term apostolic succession. Who's heard that term? Okay, about half the room. That, that's about what I, what I thought. Um, that idea, uh, apostolic succession, is rooted in this verse. That there's a tradition to be received and to pass on uh, intact from generation 
to generation through the faithful leadership that God gives to his church. Um, We would say that you can see that most clearly in the line of bishops and how God has utilized and given uh, these men to serve the church. And it's probably worth mentioning that when we think about the term apostolic succession and this baton being passed, we're kind of thinking of two things, at least at St. Thomas. Um, One is a chronological continuity. That from this uh, letter here, Paul to Timothy, we see this line of bishops and leaders, and we can trace it all the way to our bishop today. There's chronological continuity when we talk about the baton being passed. The other thing is that there's confessional continuity. There's a very specific baton and creed and confession being passed on from Paul to Timothy, from Timothy, on and on and on. And where we see the church grow and flourish and be strong uh, usually is where you have chronological continuity and confessional continuity. You see this in the history of the church, this faithful passing on of the apostolic faith, even in the midst of great hardship and persecution and struggle and suffering. We're called to receive and to pass on. Um, uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, reflecting on this passage, says that this concern for continuity, uh, for the safe transmission of teaching, uh, has sometimes been seen as boring, uh, conservative traditionalism. We like to be edgy. (laughs) We like to be new. We like to think of new insights on something. It seems maybe boring just to receive something and pass it on. He says, it's the farthest thing from that. Um, That would be a caricature because it's the gospel that's being handed on. It's the message of the Christian faith being handed on, the most revolutionary message ever heard. And, And if we don't receive and hand this on safely, well, then you kind of start getting the old kids game telephone. Remember that game telephone? Where you would start passing messages and you would drop parts of the message, you would lose parts of the message, you would not transmit it faithfully. And imagine if you're down at the end of the line, well, you've totally missed what you need to know. So if we don't pass on this faith faithfully and uh, well, without fumbling it, um, we're doing a real disservice to those who will come after us even if we think we're making things more palatable for uh, the here and the now. And then he gives three illustrations, just back to back to back. Um, I don't recommend doing that if you're a preacher, but uh, Paul does. Just three illustrations back to back to back. Um, I often think of Paul and Timothy. Their relationship would have been one where they could finish one another's sentences. They, They would have shared the same kind of imaginative grid. And so Paul can just boom, 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 hit things, and trust that Timothy can see what's going on and learn from that. And so we see three metaphors quickly. Um, he, he says, think about it if you want in terms of kind of a military endeavor or an athletic endeavor or an agricultural endeavor. Um, and I kind of like that because I occasionally take flack for using too many athletic metaphors in my preaching about Georgia football. Um, and so it's just a good reminder if you're going to do a, a metaphor like that, then also do something maybe from a different sphere that others might be more familiar with. And so he talks about uh, soldiering, um, athletics, and then he talks about being uh, a farmer, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. It's uh, these three images build on one another 
to remind Timothy to be single-minded in his focus, to be long-suffering as a disciple and a leader, um, and to work hard. Um, laziness doesn't do well in athletics, <laughs> doesn't do well on the battlefield, doesn't do well um, in farming. One scholar reminds us beyond warfare is victory. Beyond athletic effort, a prize. Beyond agricultural labor, a crop. That's what Paul wants for Timothy. Victory, a prize, a crop. It's interesting. Uh, and, and I do like verse 7. Paul realizes that he's, he's being, <laughs> he's saying a lot really quickly. He goes, okay, look, um, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In other words, Timothy, I know I'm giving you like eight orders all at once. Um, but I'm trusting that the Lord will show you uh, which of these is for you at the right time. And I actually just think there's a beauty in that, in that uh, Paul so loves Timothy. He's so connected to and devoted to Timothy, and Paul knows his life is going to come to an end. His role as teacher and mentor is going to come to an end. He goes, don't worry. You're still going to be taught. You're still going to be mentored. Uh, you're going to be able to rely on the Holy Spirit to teach and illustrate and clarify and guide you. Timothy is young and timid, but he can rely on the Holy Spirit. And Paul can entrust his friend uh, to the Holy Spirit. And then the next few verses, uh, Paul wants to remind Timothy, okay, here's what you're passing on. This is the baton. This is Paul's gospel. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Um, and I think this is really interesting because I think if you ask the average person on the street, what does it mean to talk about the gospel? Um, they're going to immediately think about what we get from this. They're going to think about what the gospel does uh, for us. Like Tim Keller has a definition of the gospel. It's beautifully in line with it. It says, you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but also more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Yes, yes, and amen. Because as a result of the gospel, our sin is dealt with. Our shame is dealt with. And we find acceptance and love with God, unity with God eternally. And again, we don't want to ever get over that or get past that. But I just want to make a fine point here that when Paul is using the term gospel, he usually has something a little more specific in mind when he uses it in the New Testament. Uh, when Paul talks about the gospel, well, the gospel is for us, but it's not about us solely. Uh, for Paul, when he talks about the gospel, uh, the gospel is about Jesus. It's the great announcement of what God has done in and through uh, Jesus, and he's done that for us. Do you see that distinction? Rather than the gospel being about us, the gospel is about Jesus, who does these things uh, for us and for our salvation. And when Paul talks about the gospel, he's not saying, do you know if you died tonight where you would go? That's a good question. He's saying, can you believe that God has redeemed and saved the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus? 
that he has taken what looked like utter defeat and shame and failure and the cross and vindicated the Lord Jesus through his mighty resurrection. And now uh, death has no power over anyone. It never has the last word anymore. And so I can sit here uh, in a prison cell knowing my time is short, but also my time is eternally long because I'm going to be with the Lord. He focuses on the death and resurrection of Jesus for us and for our salvation. Second, he announces Jesus as the Messiah. You usually see an element of either Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, or, hey, this is the offspring of David. That's really important for Paul. This is the offspring of David. That the person and work of Jesus doesn't come out of a vacuum, but that there's a long history of people. There's a long string of promises in the Old Testament. And Jesus comes as the fulfillment of that people's great hope. He comes as the fulfillment of every promise God had ever made. He's the offspring of David. Uh, We often say he's great David's greater son, to quote Paul in another place in Romans. He is the true heir, the great seed of Abraham, the better prophet, the better priest, the better king, the offspring of David. Um, It's interesting to me that Paul brings up David all the time. Um, And that's natural if you are in the first century because David is the best king Israel ever had. Uh, And again, I don't know when you hear David what you think of. You might think of him with his little lyre, um, you know, creating the Psalms, or you might think David and Goliath, kind of the kid's story, right? Um, My son, when he was younger, loved to play with Goliath. I don't know what that says about us. Um, Or you might think of David and his great failure, his great sin. But in the first century, when they thought of David, they thought of the best king they had ever had. Um, And since Paul uses an athletic metaphor, I can do that too, right? Early on. I'm just, I'm, okay. Something intriguing happened yesterday. You may not know this if you're not a Georgia football fan, but something actually changed in the water of our city. Um, And I don't know if it'll stay changed, but it was very interesting. Because for as long as I can remember, if we had a freshman running back who was really good, um, they were compared to one, uh, the archetype of a Georgia running back, kind of like David was the archetype of what it meant to be a king. But yesterday, we had a freshman run all over Auburn, and actually, everyone compared him to someone else, to Nick Chubb, which I just found was fascinating. But we understand what this is like that we, 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 we encounter something new, we encounter someone new, and we try to just go, okay, is this the category they fit in? Can we remember how good this person was? Are they going to be that and maybe even better? Um, that's the kind of thinking, that's the kind of logic when you think about the Messiah. They were waiting for not just one like King David, but someone, who, someone who's as good and great as David, but even better would fulfill all of God's promises to his people and through his people. And Paul says, hey, that's finally happened in Jesus. It's finally happened that the Messiah uh, has come. And it's not just for Israel. It's for the whole world. It is gospel. It is good news for everyone. And it's so important to Paul that he is willing to suffer for it. He's willing to clarify. He's willing to make sure that Timothy understands exactly what his message is and exactly what is at stake 
Um, I actually love the passage here starting uh, in verse 9 because he reflects on the beauty of the gospel and you go, well, Paul, what's that gotten you in this world? He says, well, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. He's been brought as low as you could be, but look what he's comforted by. The word of God is not bound. I may be bound, I may be locked up, I may be imprisoned. It may look like the work is impeded and stops with me, but the word of God is not chained or imprisoned. It is free and it is fruitful and it is expanding. Uh, through even the work of Timothy, uh, the work, the message, it doesn't stop with Paul. It goes on to Timothy and on to more Timothys, on and on and on and on to whoever shared the gospel with you and the person that shared the gospel with me. And it will keep going as you keep sharing the gospel with others. Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. So Paul writes, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's not saying his suffering is not suffering. He's saying, I can put it in a perspective and see the glory of the gospel and the glory of salvation and the glory of what God is doing in the world. And that helps me. And then the next few verses are interesting. Verse 11 through uh, 13. Um, I think in the bulletin, are they offset as, as poetry, as verse? Um, so we're pretty sure that this would have been a popular, um, you know, a, a creed or a slogan or a mantra, maybe even a song that they would have sung in these churches. Um, and I love that because Paul is saying, hey, we're not to be original. We're not to revise. We're not. To, in fact, look, I, I can just use this song that we all know. And we can see the truth that is in it. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And you go, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. It's such an interesting thing Paul is doing because he's calling on Timothy to be faithful, to not stand back, to not shirk uh, the work, to not shrink back with the the pain, the suffering that will come. But it's almost like saying, man, even if you do, it's okay. Because God loves you. It's not how he performs. Even in the time of great trial, it's the work that God has done in and through Jesus for him and for his salvation. He's not trying to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He's not trying to grit his teeth and do the right thing. He says, no, rely on the grace of God. Remember the faithfulness of Jesus that you cannot outrun or outdo. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Yeah, don't do that. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And then the last few verses is where um, I want to spend a little time finishing today. Um, someone asked me before our services today, hey, what's the sermon about? I was like, I don't know. There's like eight commands. Um, and so I want to try to maybe tie a bow on it with these last two verses and, and see a way that Paul would tell Timothy, if you want to kind of fulfill everything he's saying, here's an attitude, here's a posture um, that you need. He says, remind them of these things and charge them uh, before God. 
Uh, that phrase, before God, in Latin is a phrase, uh, coram Deo. Maybe you've heard that before, in the face of God or before God. Uh, coram Deo, you're doing this before God. Uh, it says, don't quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God or before God, quorum Deo, as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So I'm going to talk about that phrase in a moment, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Um, but it's interesting because Paul is telling Timothy, here's your job description. Here's what you're going to do as a minister um, and it just, when I was reading this, it, I just, it, what came to mind was a sermon that I heard once at an ordination service. Um, it was my former bishop, uh, Todd Hunter, uh, several years ago, uh, ordained a friend of mine named Brian Poppy, who's being ordained as a deacon. Um, those of you going to Israel with us, Brian is going to be on that trip, actually with some folks from his church. He's now a priest. He's rector of a church in Dallas. Um, and Brian was one of those guys that when he came forward to say, I think I'm supposed to be ordained, everyone was like, yeah, of course. Like, how quickly can we get this guy through? Just every natural gift you could think of, every natural talent you could think of, clear trajectory of like, man, this guy's going to just be successful and fruitful, and he's going to do great things for God. And everyone knew that as we came to the ordination service. This looks like a can't-miss uh, ordained leader. And uh, Bishop Todd, uh, his sermon, he, he acknowledged some of these things. And then he gave him a charge. What he basically said was, in the midst of all the projects, all the work that you're going to do for God, which are all good things, and it all could be the work that God has given you to do, um, never forget that ultimately uh, you are his project. He appealed to Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship. That's where we start. We're his workmanship. We're his project. And then, well, yeah, you're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, God has things for us to do, each one of us. Um, God has work for us to do. But it's worth remembering that, that his primary work is on us and in us, and then through us. And if we get that in a right perspective, um, that leads to health instead of overwork and burnout. That leads to relying on the grace and strength of God instead of just relying on our natural strengths and talents. Um, and that's hard. I think that can especially be hard if you're really naturally talented and gifted. Um, there's a point where you're like, man, I've always been able to just make things work. Um, Paul was someone who seemed to always be able to make things work. He was advancing. He was accomplished. But he had to come to the end of that and go, in my weakness, I need the Lord. In all these things I'm doing for God, I need God to do something uh, in me, to shape me, to mold me into the image of his son. And I think that Paul wants to leave Timothy with that idea. The, even though the context is troublesome, people are turning away from Paul right and left. Folks are getting arrested. Uh, there's false teaching. There is conflict. It's, there, it's nasty in Ephesus. Instead of going, well, this guy's this and that guy's this, he does a little bit of that later on. He goes, just remember, you're doing this before the face of God. Uh, you're going to be tempted to do this and think about other people, but do this before the face of God. Um, again, the Latin phrase is quorum Deo, the presence of God. 
Uh, many would say that's the essence of the Christian life and ministry, that if you can do things remembering that you're doing it in the presence of God, there's an old book by Brother Lawrence, Practicing the Presence of God. If you can do things with him in mind, that's going to be the path to growth and health. Um, and, and you might be able to get things to grow in an unhealthy manner, <laughs> or you might be able to stay healthy and things don't grow. But if you want to see growth and health, you do things before uh, the face of God. You remain focused on him. You keep him primary as uh, the priority. You keep him as your great delight. You're remembering, this is what you've done through Jesus uh, for me. That's what Paul wants to make sure that Timothy remembers. Um, and I think when I think about my own life and ministry or, or your life and ministry, we all have leadership. We all have influence. Uh, you have a walk with the Lord. Um, I wonder, are, are you doing that with a perspective that is quorum Deo? before the face of God? Is that who you're seeking to, to please? Is that who you're aware of when you're doing this work? Or are you overly distracted by the people and the problems and the conflicts and the limitations? Are you more concerned with what other people think about you or the pleasure of God? What would it look like for you to have a firm grasp on this gospel that Paul is talking about? Um, what would it look like to rely on the grace and strength of God in this way? Uh, I, I know for myself, the last few years, man, they've been hard. They've been tiring. I've seen a lot of people absolutely worn out and worn down. Um, and I was just reminded, man, in the midst of our weakness, how do we turn and rely on the Lord's strength and the Lord's grace? How do we and this is a continual process, but how do we turn to him going, I can't do this on my own. Will you work in and through me? When we finally come to the end of ourselves, we find that we can turn to the Lord. And then we do wonder, when we see this pattern of discipleship and ministry, who's God put in your path to be in the role of Paul, spiritual father or spiritual mother? Do you need to be praying for that? Be attentive to who that person might be. Um, who has God put in your path to be like a Timothy, someone you can pour into and pray for and get to know? Um, and again, that's not the end of it. The idea is that that person would then pour into someone else and someone else and someone else um, as it was, is now, and ever shall be. A world without end. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see ears to hear, and a sensitivity to what God is doing all around you, and a sensitivity uh, to do things quorum Deo, in the presence of God, for his glory and for him alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross, that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. For the honor of your name we pray. Amen.